Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Good morning. Please turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're looking at Genesis chapter 6 this morning uh, from verses 1 through to 8. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of man came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of all the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you for the great God you are, and we thank you for the confidence that we have in you. Father, we recognize that as we look around the world and as we see so much of sin and debauchery, we see violence, we see, uh, we even think of the uh, recent stabbings that took place in New Zealand and, and then just terrorism ongoing in Afghanistan and hurricanes and uh, all that kind of stuff all over the world. Father, we thank you that ultimately we have put our trust in you and you are carrying out your purposes. And we thank you for that and we thank you for the confidence that we have, uh, the fact that we can trust you even in the midst of this and we give you all glory and praise. Help us to continue to stand firm in you and help us to uh, continue to be a shining beacon in this place that you have uh, kept us. Father, we think uh, particularly uh, of the children in our church. Um, Many may perhaps be missing their friends and going to school and Uh, even meeting up with friends and so on and so forth. We just pray that an extra measure of grace would be given to these children, uh, that they would uh, have perhaps more enjoyable times at home and good family times and that parents would take an initiative to uh, even think about those things. And Father, we particularly pray for the parents as well for an extra measure of grace as they manage the children and work and uh, things around the home and uh, all that. And, and we pray, Father, even through this, that even as families, uh, even with children and parents, 
that we would seek after you and our dependence on you would continue to grow and we would seek to honor you in all things. Father, now we come to your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, that every word is inspired, every word from the Bible is inerrant, uh, because it is your word and therefore sufficient, therefore authoritative, therefore able to teach us, therefore able to rebuke us, therefore able to, uh, to cause us to grow in Christ-likeness. And we do pray, Father, that even as we listen to your word now, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would speak to us, that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word, that you would strengthen me to speak your word, uh, by the power of your Spirit, in a way that is understandable and clear, in a way that honors you, in a, uh, even in the manner of preaching uh, that exalts your character and is true to your text, and in a way that uh, blesses your people and draws uh, sinners to yourself. Father, we pray all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. You know, the more we live in this world, the world will continue to bring lies. And particularly about who we are and um, the, the state that man is in. You know, oftentimes the world will tell us really what we need to do is continue to believe in ourselves, follow our hearts, that we're not really that bad that we just need to continue to uh, self-affirm ourselves uh, and just live that reality out. And it comes through so many different ways. Uh, you know, if you compare the amount of time that we would listen to God's word and commune with him as opposed to the time that we are exposed to the world, it's significantly more. And, and often this is the message that is coming through. And I'm just so thankful that we have the word of God that continues to be a corrective in our minds and in our thinking and brings that reality back of who we are because we really, really in this day and age need a healthy dose, a healthy view of what man is or who man is and what his state is. And this morning, that's exactly what we will see from this passage in Genesis 6. It's a passage that will tell us about how man, when he rejects God and God's good rule and goes away from God and lives in, in that way for a long period of time, what man is capable of. Really, it's a, it's a passage that talks about the sinfulness of man. And, and what it shows us is that sin is not just, you know, just a small thing, just a small thing that man has or a slight failure or a slight imperfection of man, but really is at the very core of every human being. And it is good for us to have this perspective because, uh, because unless we have this perspective, we don't have that right view of ourselves and how God views ourselves. And, and therefore, we will not know what God thinks of ourselves and how we are to respond to him. 
Now, last week we looked at Genesis 5, and particularly we looked at the uh, genealogy of Adam through the line of Seth. And there we saw the truthfulness of God being established in the sense where God said, you shall surely die. And we see that as generations going past, each person would live a certain period of time and they would die. You know, one of the things that I was, th- uh, even as I was thinking, it, it came to my mind this week. You know, one thing I was thinking was, you know, it was Satan who told Adam and Eve, or Eve rather, that you will not surely die if you eat that fruit. And yet every single day we see people around us die. And really it is a testimony to two realities. One, that Satan is a liar. Every time a person dies, Satan is a liar. No, man will die. And it is also, it bears testimony to the fact that God is true and what he says will come true. And then beyond that, we, we saw of how God's promise is being upheld and how that godly line is being preserved. Then we saw God's goodness uh, in how uh, he preserved Noah and how those who trust and have a close relationship with God, death does not have to be the last word, that relationship will continue. And also even through uh, Enoch, how we saw that uh, he was warning the people of coming judgment and even God's goodness in that, where you know, there's an opportunity to repent uh, when they're told God's judgment is coming because you stand condemned. And then lastly, we even saw of how God operates uh, in a different time frame than us, where Lamech thought his son Noah would be that promised offspring. And even though he had hope in God and faith in God, he was mistaken that Noah was not the promised offspring, and yet God would still use Noah to bring some kind of rest to the world, and he would continue that line where he would finally bring the promised seed. Now, as we come to Genesis 6, we are continuing on that same section in terms of you know, what became of the generations of Adam. Now, in chapter 5, we saw of that godly line, and it's reached Noah and his three sons. Now, as we look at chapter 6, we will, uh, particularly these first eight verses, we're going to look at, again, more so what happened to the generations of Adam, what happened to the sons and daughters of Adam. And particularly, we're going to look at generally what happened and what happened in the world. So as we look at this passage, Genesis 6, it'll show us about the sinfulness of man and what man is capable of when he lives apart from God. And it also gives us the reason why then God would send that judgment in the form of a global flood. And it's setting that up before uh, the flood narrative actually starts. So I've, I've titled this morning's sermon as God's response to man's sin. And, and let's just look first of all at man's sin. And we have much to learn even about ourselves and, and our world in general that we live in because it's not much different from this world. 
And then on top of that, then we'll even learn something about God's character as well. So firstly, man's sin, and that we're going to see that in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. When man began to multiply, so it's talking about that reality of when mankind is multiplying on earth. All of the generations of Adam, the, the sons and daughters of Adam and all those different family lines that were coming through, when they were multiplying and there was even marriage between close relatives, it's talking about that time and now the focus is going to be on the daughters that were born to really the generations of Adam, to the, uh, all the... Following generations, what happened to the daughters? Now verse 2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now the term sons of God, there's a lot of debate about who the sons of God are. And I want to give you the three main views and then I want to also show you the view I take and why I think that's the, the best interpretation. Now some view the sons of God as though it were a reference to ungodly kings or rulers or, or tyrants. They would point to passages like Psalm 82.6 where it says where human rulers are called as sons of the Most High. Now according to this view, the, the issue essentially is that these ungodly rulers or kings or, or tyrants, they were taking women by force to be their wives. And there was rampant polygamy and uh, perhaps e even concubines and whatnot. And, and they're enforcing their rule, this wicked rule, on everybody else. Now the issue with this view is that the, the exact term, sons of God, that's a very specific term. It is never used of human kings or rulers in all of the Old Testament uh, in all of the Old Testament. And then on top of that, if you think that polygamy and having concubines and having rulers that is, you know, bringing about their suppressive rule, and that was the reason for God sending his judgment in the form of this global flood, doesn't really make sense. So that's, that's one view. The next view, uh, the next group, they believe that the sons of God refer to the godly line of Seth. Now in Deuteronomy 14.1, uh, Israel, God's chosen people, they are called as the sons of the Lord your God. So sons of God, they would say, is just another way of saying godly sons. And according to this view, the godly sons in Seth's line marry the ungodly woman of the world or marry the ungodly women of perhaps Cain's line. 
And through this intermarriage, finally the result is that even the godly line of Seth is disappearing, except for now just this one small family, Noah and his family. Those who support this view also say that if you look at the context, you know, in Genesis 4, it talked about the ungodly line of Seth. Then Genesis 5, you have the, un, uh, the godly line of Seth. So even according to co- uh, context, in Genesis 6, the issue is just the mixing of the two lines now. But again, I would say, just like the, the other view, Uh, The sons of God, that's a very specific term. It is not used anywhere in the Old Testament to refer to godly people or godly sons. And then again, uh, if, if it's just the issue of intermarriage between the godly and the ungodly, you know, why God would bring a flood with regards to that doesn't fully make sense. But then on top of that, if they are really godly men who are really following the Lord uh, against the tide of the rest of the world, then then why would they be interested in marrying unbelieving, God-hating women in the first place? Now the third view with regards to the sons of God is that it refers to fallen angels. And this is the view that I take. And I I think there's a lot more reasons and a lot more evidence from the Bible to take this view. First of all, this term sons of God, that very specific term in the entire Old Testament, it refers only to angels. Now when you think about it, the, the first book of the Bible or the oldest book of the Bible, in terms of when it was written, is the book of Job. This book of Job would have been available to Moses at the time when he's writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in the book of Job, the oldest book that was written, or the first book that was written, not chronologically, but in terms of when it was written, uh, in the book of Job, Job 1.6 and then Job 2.1, and then further later in Job 38 as well, we'll see this term, sons of God, specifically referring to angels. Then again, if you turn to Psalm 29.1, now in the ESV it says heavenly beings. But literally, in the original, it's the same phrase. It's, it's sons of God again there in the original. So that specific term, sons of God, is used only of angels in the Old Testament. And in the case of Genesis 6, it is referring to fallen angels, or demons, if you want to call them. Those who rebelled against God along with Satan and were cast down from heaven. So the idea is this. Fallen angels, they are lusting after human women and they're taking them as their wives. Even the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates the sons of God merely as angels. 
And even the, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found you know, many years later and even some of the oldest Jewish commentaries of this passage understood the term sons of God as referring specific to these fallen angels. Now one of the biggest objections that come against this view is that Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 22 and 30 that angels neither marry nor are given into marriage just like we will all be once we are resurrected. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 22.30. So if, if these fallen angels, and angels in general, if they're spirit beings, then how can they have sexual relationships? Well, the simple answer is that demons, they're known to possess ungodly people. They're known to possess unbelievers. We, we see that particularly, uh, you, you know, there's, a, there's quite a few of them that we see during Jesus' time in the Gospels. So the idea in Genesis 6 is that fallen angels or demons, they, they left their natural boundaries, possessed men, and married human women. Now some theologians also say that uh, you know, even when angels appear visibly to men, they, for instance, even in the book of Genesis, they, they appear as men. That they ate and drank, even in the book of Genesis, when you think of later on, uh, you know, as they came to see Abraham, we see them eating and drinking and, and they appear as men. So either demons took the form of men as they uh, they show themselves to be when they become visible, or they possessed a human body. Either way, that's what's happening here. Now the interesting thing is, if you look at the wording of Genesis 6-2, it has the same three words that's used at the fall in Genesis 3. Remember, in Genesis 3-6, it said that the woman saw that the fruit was good, or was a delight in her eyes, and then she took the fruit and she ate it. Now here in our passage it says, the sons of God saw the daughters were attractive. And guess what? That word for attractive is actually the same word that's translated as good in Genesis 3, as that which was good or pleasing or desirable in one's eyes. Just like Eve saw that the fruit was good and desirable or attractive in her eyes. So so what's happening here is the sons of God have this lustful desire as they see the daughters of men and they took wives as themselves. And I think the connection is this. That when Eve sinned, she went beyond the boundaries that God had set for her. Because God said, no, you're not going to go beyond this boundary. There are human limitations here. You will not eat from this forbidden fruit. And here, then the fallen angels or demons are now going beyond their boundaries that were set for them. And they're possessing men or taking the form of men and then taking wives, human wives for themselves. And even the fact that it says they took wives 
uh, any they chose may even be hinting at the fact that perhaps they took many wives for themselves. So that's what's happening here. And in fact, if you want more proof, if you turn to the New Testament, there are a couple of New Testament passages that give us further clarity on this passage. Second Peter chapter 2 from 4 to 9. We had it in our Bible reading this morning. Really, in Second Peter, Peter is essentially saying that, you know, he's talking to the church and saying, you're going to have trials, you're going to have difficulties, and false teachers are going to come into the church, and they're going to teach lies and false doctrine and bring about corruption in the church. But Peter's point is, but God will ultimately judge the wicked. He will destroy the wicked, but at the same time, he will rescue the godly. And Peter uses two examples from the Old Testament. The one he points to is the issue of fallen angels and Noah in Genesis 6. And the other is the account of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And his argument is this, if God did not spare angels when they sinned and brought about this judgment in the form of a flood, but rescued Noah. And then the other example he says is, if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, but rescued Lot, God will do the same for you believers. That's Peter's message, that God will judge the wicked. In any case, Peter's point is this. When he's talking about the angels who sinned, he's very clearly connecting it and relating it to the account of Noah and the flood. And then again, if you turn to Jude, verses 6 and 7, again, here Jude is also talking about false teachers and saying that they will speak lies and false doctrine and so forth. And, and, and Jude is saying God will still bring his judgment. And, he's, and uh, in verses 6 and 7, he's making a comparison using examples of the kind of sin, as he's making these two examples, that brought about God's judgment. In verse 7, particularly, he says, Likewise, Meaning, okay, I'm comparing to what I've just said before. Likewise, indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. He's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. So just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was an indulgement in sexual immorality and a pursuit of unnatural desires. Likewise, what I've said before, and what has he talked about before? He's talked about fallen angels, angels who left their natural boundaries. And you say, when did that happen? And he's relating it specifically to sexual sin. When did that happen? Genesis 6. And, and what it says there is, with Sodom and Gomorrah, God brought down fire and he burned down the place with the wicked in it. But to these angels, these fallen angels who participated in this particular sin, God bound them up in a prison and they are reserved for that final day of judgment. 
They will not be released like the rest of the demons. These particular demons, they have been imprisoned, restricted by God, and they're waiting that final day of judgment. So I would argue that it is best to understand then the sons of God as referring to fallen angels or demons taking possession of man, marrying human women to fulfill their perverted desires and crossing boundaries that God had set for them. But, no, but I want you to think about the bigger context too as to what is happening here. I mean, it's, it's bad enough they're, they're, you know, it's such an unnatural thing that is happening here. They're, they're going to such extent. But when you think about the bigger context, remember, God had cursed the serpent and said that the seed of the serpent is going to crush, uh, pardon me, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, the serpent heard that, Satan heard that, but it's not like now Satan is saying, okay, this is my judgment, this is my curse, I'm just going to wait for that to come. No, he's going to fight it all the way through. And he's going to try and win, he's not going to be passive about it. No, he's going to be very much active and he's going to try and, you know, somehow do away with that curse. And we've already seen that Cain was the seed of the serpent. Then he killed righteous Abel. And now with Seth and his line progressing, even though it is a small remnant, now there's this possibility somewhere through this line that this promised offspring could come, who could come and defeat him. So what is Satan's plan? To cross these natural boundaries and marry human women and create some kind of hybrid, you know, demon, human uh, kind of creature. Till all of mankind becomes this perverted mixed breed of some sort, where it would be impossible for the promised seed of the woman to come. That's what's happening here. But when you come to verse 3, What's interesting is God is focused more on punishing the man. Look at verse 3. It says there, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now you might be thinking, but why is God now focused on judging man? Why doesn't he say anything about these fallen angels and judging them? Well, God does judge these demons, and we read about that in 2 Peter and in Jude. But the focus here in Genesis 6 is on the generations of Adam, what became of man. So that's the focus here. And what verse 3 is then implying is that man was also complicit with the demons in this sinful act. And really when you think of Second uh, Peter and Jude and the context in which uh, it's talked about, the context of false teachers and judgment, 
It is possible then that these demons may perhaps may have come to this godless world, to all of them who had rejected God and following their own way and had gone the way of, the Cain, had gone the way of Cain. It is possible that these demons would have come to them and just lied to them about God and his word again and promised them things, just like Satan did with Eve. You know, perhaps the demon said things like, you know, I'll give you superhuman strength. And we know even to this day, there are accounts of people who have been demon-possessed and how people will attribute to the fact that, yeah, they, they, they have uncanny strength and they throw uh, tables and, and whatnot around. Or maybe it was the promise of eternal life rather than uh, death. Maybe it was the promise that the next generation would be far more superior and, and far more greater than what God created mankind to be. See, whatever may have been the lies that these demons brought in and told these godless men and women, what we can say is that they were also very much complicit and wanting to join forces with the demons willingly in this sinful act. Why? Because this mankind was also so sinful that they hated God so much that they were willing to go to any extent to live a better life and to overcome living under the curse apart from God, just like Cain was trying to live and, and the rest of his line. And this seemed like a better opportunity. So it was literally becoming a demonic world. And man was inviting demons into their very homes. This is how sinful man had become. But here's the thing. Satan's plan, it didn't work. You see, angels or demons... They cannot procreate like man. They cannot produce their own kind. I mean, imagine if demons could in some way procreate, we'd have way more demons around. But it's only a set number, whatever God had originally created. God didn't create them with that kind of capacity to produce after their kind. And at the end of the day, even with the unthinkable union of demons and human beings, you know what they got from that union? All they got at the end of the day were human babies. And so God says, because you've been so sinful, even willing to unite with demons, God says, my spirit shall no longer strive, shall no longer abide in man, is what the ESV says. I like what one of the other translations says, where it says, my spirit shall no longer strive with man. I think that's a better translation. See, God is saying to mankind, my spirit, my Holy Spirit, it has been striving with you 
It has been contending with you. Now this might be talking about God's warning of coming judgment through Enoch as he preached of coming judgment, as we saw last week. Or it could have been Methuselah, remember, who lived for 969 years and his name meant when he dies, it will come. So perhaps he too told others about coming judgment and there was opportunity to repent and turn away from their sin and turn to God. And so despite the striving of the Holy Spirit through uh, these godly men, man continues to harden his heart in sin against God. So much so that now they're even willing to have this unholy union with demons. And so God is saying, you thought you could become somebody superior You thought you could become somebody else and somehow get rid of the curse and have a better life. But God says, you are still only flesh. You're still mortal, a human being, still in your sin. You haven't become anything supernatural. And and God says, so my warning of judgment and call to repentance, it has an end date. It will not last forever. And he says, now it'll be only for another 120 years. That's how much time my Holy Spirit will continue to strive with you and warn you. After that, the judgment will come. You know, just as a side note, you know, as you're thinking about it, I think this, again, is God's grace to sinful mankind. That he gives another 120 years. I mean, the the world has become so perverse. God could have immediately just struck everyone dead. No, he still says, you know what, I'm going to give you another 120 years where God is going to be patient with them, where God is going to bear with them, and where there's an opportunity to repent. And as we read later on, and even as we come to the New Testament, you have Noah during that time building the ark, and he's called the preacher of righteousness as well. Again, warning people for 120 years of the coming judgment. Oh, what a grace of God. So God says... My striving will not be forever. My spirit will not strive with you forever. It will be only for another 120 years. And then verse 4 goes on to say, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now the term Nephilim, it means fallen ones. Fallen ones probably in the sense of they were really morally fallen. The, you know, that end of verse 4, it says they were mighty men, meaning they were powerful. They were violent, aggressive warriors. And it also says that they were men of renown, that everyone around knew them. You know, 
because they were just such aggressive, fierce, violent warriors. And they were known by everyone around. And, and some have suggested even the fact that, you know, they could have been giants. And it's more likely they would have been, you know, very tall people as well. You know, one of the things, even as I did a detailed study on Nephilim this week, you know, I must confess, till, till this week, I used to think that the Nephilim were a mixed breed of, or a half-breed of demon and human being. But as we've already seen, there was no such thing. Because God said, you're still only flesh. And I think the point in verse 4 about the Nephilim is that these mighty warriors, fierce men, What it's saying is they were there before. They were there during the time of this perverse union. And notice it also says, and they were also present afterward, after the flood even. What does that mean? It means that nothing special happened with this union between demons and mankind. Yes, they got Nephilim, but these Nephilim were there before. And they will be there even afterward. Other human marriages also brought about the Nephilim. Yes, the Nephilim may have been mighty men. They may have also been uh, giants. But they're still men. They're not a special breed of humans and uh, some kind of supernatural being. As they thought would come about. See, I think the big point of these first four verses in Genesis 6-4 is this. That despite the terrible perversion and sin of man against God, and their desire to somehow overcome the curse and have a better life apart from God, And mixed with that, even Satan's ploy to get rid of the possibility of somehow having a promised seed in trying to create a mixed breed, it completely failed. Whether it's man's sin or Satan's schemes, they can never foil God's plans. God is completely sovereign and will bring to pass what he has planned. So, you know, even us as believers, when we see the world around us, and, we, you know, and it seems like there is so much wrong going on, so much of wickedness and sin and terrorism and, and, and whatnot, we can still trust God because he will always win. Because he will always accomplish his purposes. And whatever he has said will come to pass and nothing will be able to stand in his way. Still, we must remember that Satan has not backed down. Even this day, 
and often through the world system, Satan will try to lure God's children away from him. You know, there's the, the world through Satan, or Satan through the world rather, will, will bring all kinds of promises, saying, oh, you know, offering a better life. You know, you do this, you'll have more joy and more happiness, and oh, you know, things will be so much better for you if you live this way. They're all lies. If you examine it against the Word of God, and it goes against the Word of God, let me tell you, they're all lies. And these verses should remind us that that is the path of more ruin and wickedness and ultimate destruction. The way of the world. It is the way of Cain. It is the, the pathway set by Satan and to deceive mankind. Only God and only God can truly help man and deliver him and lead him in the way of everlasting joy and life. So that's the sin of man at this time in the world. Now let's look at God's response in verses 5 through 8. Let me just read verse 5. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. See, the last time we saw God seeing anything was in Genesis 1, during creation week, remember? God saw that it was good, and then again, the next day, God saw that it was good. And then finally, when he finished all that he wanted to create, we saw... uh, You know, we saw in Genesis 1, God saw his creation that it was very good. That it was a creation that reflected God's goodness and his glory. But now when God sees his creation, he doesn't see his goodness and his glory reflected. No, it is a perverted world. The whole world is covered with with the wickedness of man where sin and violence and debauchery has multiplied on the face of the earth, even as, as man is multiplying. In fact, it's, it's not just the external wicked behavior that God saw, but God also saw what was on the inside. Notice again verse 5. It says, God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now this is one of the most profound verses that talk about the, the, the depths of the sinfulness of man. I mean, just, just look at the terms that are used here to emphasize the utter lostness of man. Every intention, not some intentions, every intention was only evil continually, perpetually, without any breaks. Every intention without exception. You know, every intention, it it literally means every forming or every formation or every framework. 
So from there you get the idea of every imagination or every purpose or every intention. In fact, the, the word intention here is closely related to the verb form, that word form that is used of God in Genesis 2.7 where it said, God formed the man from the dust. Or in Genesis 2.19 where it said, God formed the animals. And this word intention is very closely related to that word. And it's almost as if to say, as one commentator put it, what God forms is beautiful. But what man forms and purposes and intends is repulsive. And it says here, it's the formations or the intentions of the thoughts of the heart. Now the heart, according to the Bible, is the core of the being. It is the inner part, is the very essence of the person. Now in our modern day language, when we say heart, we just talk about the emotions. But according to the Bible, it's, it's not just the seat of emotions, it's also where the will of man and the mind of man resides. Every formation, every purpose or intention of the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually, perpetually. Meaning that the sinfulness of man right at the heart level was not just every now and then or even at this particular time but this is the state of a sinfully lost heart. Now, what this means, therefore, is that it doesn't mean, therefore, that therefore, a person who has this kind of heart is totally evil like Hitler or maybe even worse. Nor does it mean that this kind of heart cannot have any half-decent thought or desire. But what it does mean is that ultimately, this kind of heart is always going to be tainted by sin. That it is corrupted by sin to its very core. That it is not going to be pleasing in the sight of God. This is the heart that does not want to live for the glory of God and the honor of His name. And it's the kind of heart that never wants to come to God on God's terms. If it will ever come to God, it will be simply on its its own terms. And, And I want to point this out, that, see, this is not unique, this kind of heart is not unique to the people who were just there before the flood. No, this is true of all mankind. In fact, even after the flood, look at what God says about mankind in Genesis 8 and 21. This is what God says. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for, notice, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Very similar phrasing. That this is still man's plight even after the flood. See, this is what theologians call as total depravity. Total not in the sense of, 
you know, the degree of sin that, that that person is, you know, is like Hitler or worse. But total in the sense of being. Total in the sense of it affects the body and the soul. The physical and the spiritual part of man is corrupted by sin. There's not an area that is not tainted by sin. See, the external body, it, it suffers the effects of the sin by it decaying and even suffering death ultimately and even acting as a vehicle for sin. And even the spiritual part, the soul, is also corrupted by sin. The affections, the, the thinking and the reasoning and the will and the desires of man are all corrupted by sin. And I want you to understand this because th that's what the Bible is trying to say here. Let me just read to you a whole bunch of verses just to see that this is something that the Bible says about the state of the sinful heart of man. Jeremiah 17, 19 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Titus 1.15 says, to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Psalm 14.2 2 and 3, and it's again quoted in Romans 3 to explain the plight of man. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment before God. John 8.34 says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 8, 7 to 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, hates God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is how sinful and depraved man is. See, it's not just that man has got a, you know, a, a few failures here and there, you know, a few mistakes. No, it is that man is sinful all the way through. From the inside out, he is sinful. And it is that man's heart is continually evil and is hostile to God and lives only for self and not for the glory of God. And every human being apart from God has this kind of heart and is even capable of doing things, the same evil acts like Hitler, and even more so if it were not for the grace of God restraining them and constraining them. And even the fact that man has shorter lifespans is how God then restrains that evil heart. 
But each person who's lost in their sin has the capacity of Hitler and even more right in their heart. It is the same heart. It is the heart of every man without God. And this is the state of the whole earth during Noah's time, as man lived for even a longer period, so much so that the external wickedness is now even more rampant and it's flowing out of their wicked hearts, so much so that now they're forming unions with demons. And God is seeing all this. But he doesn't just sit there, you know, seeing this from a distance. He is moved to action. Verse 6 says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, that somehow God was surprised by what happened. Oh, you know, oh, this is what's happened to man. Oh, I better do something. No, God knows everything. Isaiah 42, 9. It says this, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Even before anything happens, God knows about everything, and, and he can tell you all about it. He knows the beginning from the end. Nor does this mean that God is, you know, at some point or certain times he was not in control. He just kind of took his hand off some things and he was distracted by something. Now he's saying, it's like, oh, you know, now I've got to figure out how I'm going to fulfill my plan. No. Isaiah 46, 7, uh, 46.10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Or Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So here's the thing. God knows everything. He is fully in control and he will not chop and change as, as things happen and then try and maneuver things and try and figure out how he's going to fulfill his purposes. Oh, no, that's not how God works. In fact, God is so transcendent, so other than, so apart from his creation, God exists outside of time and space. We exist inside of time and space. God exists outside of that. He doesn't live in succession of moments. God is outside of that. For God, everything from eternity past to eternity future is an eternal present right now. And he's just outside of that and everything is right here. And yet... What we see is that God interacts with his creation in space and time. As his will, whatever he has decided, comes into play in succession of moments in time and space. 
And why, you know, all these things are written as, as God interacts with his creation in time and space is to sh- for our benefit, where we can understand the character of God, where he can display his glory this way. And even though nothing about God changes, including his plan or his will, from, from man's perspective, so if God is like this and everything is an eternal present right here, he's outside of time and space, but from man's perspective, when God responds in a certain way, it would seem like God is suddenly changing his mind and moving along like that. But when in reality, it's always been God's plan because he's outside of this. And now it's just being played out even with the responses of man, but God had always planned it that way. So then the language that is being used here, it's, it's anthropomorphic. It, that's just a fancy way of saying that it's written in human terms. So that we, human beings, who live in time and space, uh, and in moments of time, and we go through moments of experience, that's how we live. So we can then understand God as he responds, and, and what his emotion and his response to sin is. So God being sorry or regretting or, or being grieved and being grieved to the heart, it's not so much as though God is thinking, oh, oh no, I, I've made a mistake here, now I've got to try and figure this out. No, God doesn't make mistakes. He's, he, he doesn't change his plans. They're always perfect, and his plans will always come to pass. No, it, it, this is language that is expressing the idea of God's pain and sorrow with regards to sin. That's always his, his emotion towards sin. And so now he has to act in a way that is consistent with his holy and righteous character. And he must judge sin. And God cannot do anything else but judge sin, even though he's pained and grieved by the sin that he sees all around in the world. And so verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made man. You know, in Ezekiel 33:11, it says, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Again, that's writing in human terms so we can understand the very heart of God. So even though God is pained by all the wickedness of man, it grieves him, it pains him, he's sorrowful about it, and he takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked, God still must be true to his character. He must act according to his character. 
He has to act consistently with his righteous and holy nature. And therefore, God has to bring judgment and give the sentence that is due to man for his sin. And in this case, he's going to wipe out the whole earth because that's what the whole, all of humanity has become. And what these verses are highlighting is the fact that man is utterly sinful. That's why these verses, you know, so much detail about God's response and all these details about man's sin. Because God is trying to tell us that man is utterly sinful. So here's the thing. You and I, we are far worse, far, far, far worse than we realize with regards to our sinfulness. Because we tend to minimize our sin. God is saying, no, 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 it's, it's much bigger, much greater your sin. And we must not forget that when we sin, therefore, as believers, that first and foremost, whatever sin it is, it is a sin that is against God ultimately. And it grieves God. It pains God. That's his eternal attitude towards somebody who sins. And we must never forget that as his children. And then beyond that, we must also understand that when God judges man for his sin, God is not being cruel. He's not being unfair. He's not being unjust. No, God is in fact being just by giving man exactly what he deserves for his utter, uh, utter deplorable sin. God doesn't owe any man any grace or mercy. That is what these verses are saying. What man deserves for his willful sin and rebellion against God is judgment, and that is absolutely deserved. And God is right to do that. And we should keep this mind, we should keep this in mind, even as we look at God's judgment in sending a worldwide flood, which we will see even in the coming days. Now it is against this darkness, this darkness of God's looming judgment against the wickedness of man, oh, the, the, the brilliance of God's grace shines in all of its glory. Look at verse 8. But, strong contrast here, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I, I just love that. See, the word for favor here is the word for grace. 
In other words, Noah found grace in God's sight. And this, this, this terminology to, to, to find favor or, or to find grace in God's sight, it simply means that then God is being gracious toward that individual person. That God showed undeserved, not deserved, but undeserved favor toward Noah. Now, lest we think that somehow, you know, Noah was sinless or something like that, just turn to Genesis 8.21. We looked at this before, but I want to just come back to this again. Genesis 8.21, and the scene is, this is after the flood. Noah is coming out of the ark, and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And God says, every intention of the heart of man is still wicked. Yes, God is making, you know, generalizing and saying, this is the plight of man, generally speaking. But nonetheless, he's also still talking about Noah and his family. And if that doesn't convince you enough, then when we get to Genesis 9, we'll see of how much of a sinner Noah is. So Noah by no means was a perfect or sinless man. And God's grace toward Noah had nothing to do with something that Noah did where, you know, somehow he, God could show more grace to him, unlike the rest of the world. No, Noah had the same heart as everybody else in the world. He had the exact same heart. He didn't earn or merit God's grace. It was just purely God's doing. It was an undeserved gift from God. And beyond that, you know, God was fulfilling his promise that he would preserve a godly line from the seed of the woman for himself. And that's what he's doing here with Noah. And ultimately, it is through Noah's line, even that ultimate promise of the, the ultimate offspring that would crush the head of the serpent would come. So God is keeping his word. So the question we should ask is not why God would wipe out the earth and judge, judge mankind for their wickedness and sin. Really, the question should be, why should God show grace at all to any sinner? That is the question we should be asking. If you're listening to this message today and you're someone who is still living for yourself, not for the glory of God, you have not put your trust in Jesus, you're just kind of umming and ahhing or putting away Jesus and, you know, my time, I'll think about it and whatever else. Let me tell you, friend, what this passage is saying is that God will not wink at sin. No, he will punish sin, and he must punish sinners for those who continue to rebel against God. And God is right and just to do so. See, God's universal flood that came during the time of Noah, where, you know, basically the whole world, all of life was wiped out to this way, except for Noah and his family and the animals that were in the ark. 
compared to that judgment? That's just the preview. That's just the, you know, the, the beginning of something. It's just a short picture into what is finally coming. Because God is going to bring a final universal judgment by fire that he will bring on sinners. Those who continue to go down this path of, of rejecting God and rejecting Jesus and living their own way. And that final judgment will be far worse. This final judgment in the lake of fire will be far worse than that small preview of a global flood that God had sent during, Moses time, during Noah's time. And let me tell you, friend, no matter what you do, you will not be able to escape it. And you will not be able to get out of your sinful state or ever make yourself right with God just your own way or by following the ways of the world. It's an impossibility. But God's final judgment doesn't have to be the final word in your life. Because this same God who is just and righteous is also gracious and merciful. You see, this God, he finally sent the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, to come into this world and die on the cross to pay the price for sinners like you and me, where he bore the full judgment of God against sin. And then Jesus rose on the third day, proving that he had totally uh, vanquished the wrath of God and that he had paid the price for sin. See, God has shown his grace this way so that your sin problem can be taken care of and you can be made right with God. And if you're listening today and you say, oh, I, I, I recognize my sin. I recognize that I stand condemned before God. And I would say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And if you say you believe in Jesus and what he has done, then turn away from your sin. Turn away from living for yourself and live for Jesus, making much of him. Because this is the evidence that you truly have put your trust and faith in Jesus. For those of us who are believers, I want to read to you Ephesians 2 and 9. 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. See, as believers, let us not forget that we are far worse, far worse than we think we are as sinners. Let us never forget that. But at the same time, let us also not forget that God's grace shown to us has been even greater than that. So much more greater than we realize. So let our boast be always in our Lord Jesus as we live in light of the grace that he has shown to us through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we...
are thankful for the God you are. You're a God who is just and right, and yet you are a God who is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and merciful. But you will not let sin go unpunished. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening today, as they're listening to this message, that they would heed what you are saying through your word. That they would not wait for another day. That they would recognize their sinfulness and that they would turn to Christ. For there is still grace being offered to them. And yet one day when Christ returns, there will, that time is over. And either your judgment will fall on Jesus for all those who trusted in you, or your judgment will fall on those sinners who continue to rebel against you and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Father, I pray that if there are those who are listening who are not saved, that they would turn to you and they would submit to you and trust in Jesus. Father, but for those of us who are believers, let us never forget the plight of our heart or even our sinfulness. Let us never minimize it. But also, in light of that, then let us see your grace shown to us even more so, that we would never take it for granted, that we would never minimize your grace, that we would never use that as a, some sort of way to boast in ourselves, but we would simply give you glory and thanks, and our life would reflect that. Thank you, Father, for your grace that you have shown through Jesus Christ, and it is in his name we pray. Amen.